Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Yes, you are the audience that I devotedly serve, recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful, life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom, well, that's just another day of privilege for me, because you are not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life. You have your hand on the steering wheel of your life. As William Ernest Henley's great poem Invictus ends, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Because you are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. You are not people staring around blankly, hoping that somebody's going to come along and massage you with warm butter. No, it's my honor to serve you and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, in which I am able to reveal how the world really works. That's right. This is the only show in the entire digital universe that actively and efficiently reveals how the world really does work. And one way the world really works is by recognizing that everybody has a need for a religion. That's right. Now, wait a moment. You're going to say, what are you talking about after all? I know plenty people who are atheists. I know plenty people who are not religious at all. Why are you saying that everybody needs religion? Ah, I'm saying that because you have to realize that there are more religions on the shelves of the religion store than you recognized. The the catalog of religions is quite large. And so that desire of people is for a religion defined in slightly broader terms. What is a religion? Well, it would be a, uh, some organization in which you involve yourself that is bigger than you are. You're associating with something larger than yourself. It's basically a way of getting outside of yourself in a spiritual way. That's one thing a religion does. Another thing a religion does is connects you with other people. In other words, nobody wants to belong to a religion of which he or she is the only person. And so it does connect you with other people. And the third thing a religion fills is the need that God placed inside of all human beings— Or, if you like, that uh, the process of Darwinian random materialistic evolution evolved into all human beings, and that is a deep need for sacrifice. And so uh, you can make government your religion, and then you subscribe to the religion of statism, The state and the government is the source of all good. It connects you with all kinds of other people in government, other people who feel the same way. Um, It demands sacrifice of you. 
taxes. And so that's why you will hear many conspicuously affluent people say they're not paying enough taxes. Many politicians will tell you that you're not paying enough taxes. And they don't think for even a moment that you might disparage them for wanting to take more of your money. They assume you're part of the same religion they are and that your desire to sacrifice of yourself for the greater good of your God, your religion, and all the devotees of your religion is self-understood. It's taken for granted. Um, You might be a Shia Muslim, in which case you're associated with something vastly bigger than you. It does connect you with many other people, and it requires sacrifice on, on a very basic level once a year to celebrate the death of one of the grandsons of the prophet, uh, you would celebrate the holiday of Ashura and you would cut your scalp and have the blood flowing down your face and then you'd do something that's even harder and more painful and that's you'd cut the scalp of your young son and your little daughter and have the blood running down their face as well and in that way you would sacrifice. You might be Jewish um, in which case you connected not only to a large number of people past and present, uh, but you are also connected to something bigger than yourself. And the sacrifices, well, um, six times a year uh, we fast. There's a day of not eating or drinking. Uh, There is a requirement to give 10% of our income away. Uh, There are restrictions on our behavior, Um, what I can eat, who I can sleep with. These are sacrifices, and they are part of a religion. Now, I know that my main interest is the ancient Jewish wisdom I can bring you, and for that reason, I don't talk a lot about myself because I don't think that interests you at all, and rightly so. But uh, I will tell you this, that uh, my wife and I started a synagogue. We planted a new synagogue in Southern California um, about three or three decades ago, maybe a little bit more. And um, there were some really interesting people we met. Um, Somebody once asked me what I would call recently um, an old, somebody with whom I've remained close Uh, who was one of the senior members of the congregation, asked me recently, um, would I write a book about my time in the congregation? I explained why I probably wouldn't do that. He said, well, if you did, what would you call it? And I said, I think I'd probably call it a hundred fascinating and amazing people I never deserved to meet but did. And that really uh, captures my time serving the congregation of Pacific Jewish Center on the beach in Venice, California, on the outskirts of Los Angeles. And one of the people um, was a guy who showed up in a Time magazine article. Remember there was a magazine called Time magazine, Once Upon a Time? I know they've tried to resuscitate it, but... um, Uh, regardless. He showed up along with two other gentlemen uh, as the whiz kids 
of um, aero, aero, aeronautical finance. Well, um, there were a number of, of companies um, not far from LA airport, large companies. TRW was one of them, and, um, and there were several others that were based in Los Angeles near the airport. And they were not just aeronautics. They were very big on finance, and they grew. And one of them had a person who really, um, as sitting at the helm of that company, drove it to great heights back in those days. And um, he came and got involved in my synagogue in those early years. And he had been, he had, a, he had almost zero exposure to the Bible, to Judaism, to God, almost nothing at all. But it was perfectly obvious that he was an extraordinarily bright and insightful and also um, a humble guy in, in a certain sense, not in every sense, but he was a humble guy in an in intellectual sense. And I summed all this up very soon after meeting him. And somebody who's bright and intellectually humble and interested is, is a fascinating person for me to talk to because he is open to new ideas and he's bright enough to challenge those new ideas, but to challenge them as a question, not as a telling. You know what I mean? Very often people ask me questions and I'm delighted to answer to the best of my ability. Other times people tell me questions. What's the difference? The difference is they're not interested in an answer. Uh, they're interested in silencing me or uh, at, they're attempting to provide themselves with an antidote to my teaching. So this guy came along, and by the way, um, he shows up in our book. There's a book that Susan and I wrote called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. And he shows up in this book, but I changed everybody's names. I used their initials, but I changed the names. But um, we started talking, and I one of my questions as we were chatting was, so uh, everybody needs a religion of some kind. Is your religion your work and your company? And he said, oh, no. He said, I, I have a very realistic understanding of my relationship with my company they would drop me in a moment if it suited them even with all I've done for them and uh, I said yes I know I saw the article in Time magazine where you were listed as one of the whiz kids uh, and he laughed and he said well uh, he said it's been a few years since I've been a kid but uh, I've done a lot for them but I know that that's not reciprocated in any meaningful kind of way so no I, I don't worship that at all so I said so have you never had a religion he said oh I most definitely do I am part of the ethical culture movement and it was now my turn to be a little humble because I had never heard of that astonishingly uh, looking back, I must say, I really am surprised that I didn't know, because it really is one of the fascinating things in American religious history. And as you know, during the 1800s, uh, America was a hotbed of religious enthusiasm. And as a matter of fact, it was the serious religious commitment all around the country, but particularly the Northeast, uh, 
Um, it was particularly in the Northeast that the Latter-day Saints, Church of the Latter-day Saints, got launched. And um, there was uh, William Butler, and there were all kinds of amazing, the, uh, the, there were these various movements, um, the uh, uh, organizations that started, some of them thrived, some of them less so, but they were popping up everywhere. And, and all this religious enthusiasm is what fueled America's drive towards the abolition of slavery a movement which was driven both in the United Kingdom and in the United States primarily by the pulpits of the churches. And many, many churches sprang up. And uh, what happened was that Jews who had rejected Judaism, now you might say, since I've said everybody needs a religion, why would Jews have rejected their religion? And the answer is because of its sacrifices. You see, one of the basic requisites in Judaism is the willingness to stand apart. As a matter of fact, the very name Hebrew, which I much prefer to Jew, right? If if um, uh, if I have the option, and I, I mean, you know, I don't want to just be provocative and. Uh, and um, and uh, iconoclastic for its own sake, but I'd much rather be Rabbi Daniel Lappin the Hebrew than Rabbi Daniel Lappin the Jew. And the reason is because Jew is a contraction of Judah, and that's all very well, but that's only part, that's one-twelfth of the Jewish people. Judah was only one of the twelve sons of Jacob, and Judah had uh, remarkable qualities, but they were not in and of themselves sufficient. They were necessary, but they were not sufficient. The qualities of Joseph, quite different, were required to be integrated into the overall worldview of the descendants of Abraham. And of course, it was Abraham who was defined as a Hebrew. Now, the word Hebrew in Hebrew is ivri, and the, um, the meaning of that is to, well, it means to cross over. It means to cross over the river, to stand on the other side. It means to leave the crowd of people and stand separate and aside, away from them, hold your head up and still be able to be who you are, even if you're not part of the crowd. And, and that's something I'm, I'm, I can definitely aspire towards, to be a Hebrew. And, uh, and the problem is that for many people, uh, it's difficult. And I'm not saying it's, it's not hard for me. I think it's, it's easier for me than for many other people because I am a rabbi. So, uh, you know, what, am I, what else am I going to be? But um, I think it is, it is very tough. For people who are uh, taking jobs as uh, in offices or in factories, or people who are starting up businesses, and all of a sudden the sun starts going down on a Friday, and you have to tell your boss or your fellow workers and your associates, "I'm sorry, I'm going to be leaving now. I'm going to be at home for the next 25 hours." 
and your fellow workers or your boss might say, no problem, you can uh, remote work, we'll be in touch via Zoom and email and Slack. So we'll, and you say, no, I actually don't use any of my electronic devices or screens on the Sabbath. And he says, well, all right, fine, we'll phone you if there's anything. No, you know what, I don't, I don't talk on the phone either. And this is very difficult, especially if you're starting your career, you don't yet have seniority, you don't yet have status. And, and there you are, this is not simple. And, um, uh, you know, the next thing is your fellow workers say, we're going out for lunch, come join us, we'll have a working lunch. And then you go to a lunch, it's a, co a restaurant that doesn't carry kosher food. And so you sit awkwardly with a cup of coffee and a, and a bowl of uh, salad uh, while everyone else is having a meal. There's, you know, there are awkwardnesses to being a Hebrew. And that is why it is that so many people um, sort of retain, they want to retain the identity of Judaism because that gives you one of the big advantages which is that you're part of a group and it's a big group and it's a group that goes back in history. But um, you don't want the third benefit of a religion, which is uh, the sacrifice, because for many people, I understand, it is quite heavy. It's not so simple. And, you know, we human beings are very uh, complicated creatures. We don't always understand our own motivations of exactly why we say and do certain things. We certainly do not understand the motivations of other people. It's arrogant to tell somebody else why he's doing something. Half the time you don't know yourself why you're doing something. And, uh, and, and so it is that uh, with, uh, with Jews having trouble um, subscribing to the rules and regulations and restraints of Judaism, they want to still retain the affiliation, but they now have to take a philosophical position hostile to those requirements and hostile to the God who made those demands. And so that's one of the reasons that for many Jews, uh, rejecting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob becomes part of their religious identity. And they'll often tell you, hey, I'm proud of being Jewish. But if an invisible detective followed them for 24 hours a day, for seven days a week, for an entire month, he would see absolutely nothing that would tell him that they're actually Jewish. See, so uh, round about in the 1800s, middle of the 1800s, America is incredibly religious. And if, if you lived in the Northeast, you're living in New York, Massachusetts, uh, uh, Maryland, uh, New Jersey, um, Pennsylvania, uh, you were surrounded by people who went to church on Sunday. It's hard for us today in the 21st century to remember just how normal a God-fearing religious lifestyle was for most people in the United States in the 1850s. 
Well, that put many Jews at a slight disadvantage because when people would say, well, don't you go to church? Well, you know, by us as synagogue. Oh, okay, do you go to synagogue? No, I don't go to synagogue. I, I, don't, I, I don't pray to God. Really? So, like, what is your religious affiliation then? Well, I'm so, well, that was why a guy called Felix Adler uh, created something called the Ethical Culture Movement or the Ethical Culture um, uh, uh, Community. And um, what the idea was, was that it would have all the outward trappings of a religion without any of the, well, let's call it the awkward religious components. That part people uh, didn't want. And, and Felix Adler was just the right guy in the right place. Um, he, was a, uh, he was the son of a rabbi. And um, he uh, was actually trained. He was in training to be a rabbi. His rabbi was Samuel, Samuel Adler. And he was quite a prominent rabbi. He was the rabbi of the Reform Temple called Temple Emmanuel in New York on Fifth Avenue. And uh, Samuel Adler, as part of the, uh, of the training for his son to eventually take over his position, uh, he sent his son to the University of Heidelberg, one of the great European universities. And there, uh, the young Felix Adler uh, was drawn to essentially secularism, which was already at that point, particularly in Europe, not so much in the States yet, but it, particularly in Europe, universities were already becoming the high temples of atheism. And... Um, Felix Adler uh, decided that he had to um, find some... He certainly didn't want to see his future as being with his father at Temple Emmanuel, even though the reform movement had by that point eliminated an enormous percentage of those sacrifices, if you like, uh, those rituals and rules and restraints... In Reform Judaism, then as now, you didn't have to eat only kosher food. You could eat prawns and crabs and pork and anything you wanted, even um, cheeseburgers, which I understand must be delicious. Uh, you, could, you didn't have to stop work on Sabbath, on the Saturday, on Shabbat. And so most of the rules had already been stripped from Judaism by the Reform Movement, the Temple Emmanuel at which Felix Adler's dad um, officiated. But uh, Felix wanted to take it even further. So he started the Ethical Culture Society. And uh, let me give you uh, some of the, well, I, let's not call it the Ten Commandments, because the whole point of it is there are no commandments. But let's look at, at uh, 10 um, positions, 10 beliefs of ethical culture. Uh, one is we believe that human life is most meaningful when lived ethically. Okay, that's a very nice sentiment. But I think you'll agree with me that it means absolutely nothing. Why? Well, because the word ethics isn't defined. Uh, something I want to 
remind you of, something I want you to remember, is that any time somebody uses the word moral or immoral, ethical or unethical, or even good and evil, the very next phrase in their sentence should tell us according to what matrix of morality, according to what system of good and evil, according to what set of rules of ethics. Do you follow what I'm saying? There isn't one universal human agreement on what is ethical. There isn't. I don't doubt for a moment that for Muhammad Atta and his 18 fellow conspirators who flew airplanes uh, on September the 9th, uh, September the 11th, 2001, um, murdering over 3,000 Americans. And I don't doubt for a moment that for him, in his system, and by the way, for a whole lot of other people who subscribe to his faith, that was an incredibly ethical, moral, and religiously heroic thing to do. It was. Let's not deny that. And so we have to understand that when ethical culture society said, we believe that human life is most meaningful when lived ethically, that statement means absolutely nothing because you haven't told us what the ethics are. And so as I go through these 10, I'm going to be distinguishing with you the difference between a sentiment and a policy. A sentiment is a very pretty, warm, comfortable kind of feeling you get. A policy is something you have to do whether you like it or not. Uh, Early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's a sentiment. A person who sets his alarm clock and jumps out of bed at five in the morning and says, I am now going to get an extra hour of, uh, of my day um, into my life, that is a policy. It's a difference, a sentiment and a policy. So number 10 is we believe that human life is most meaningful when lived ethically. It means absolutely nothing. Number nine, our religion involves personal growth, not dogma. Again, that could be a person whose religion is, uh, is physical training and whose temple is Gold's Gym in Venice, California, which I remember very well indeed from when I lived there in that area. Uh, our religion involves personal growth, not dogma. All right. Uh, personal growth of what kind? My body? Developing my body? Nah, of course not. We mean your personhood. Well, what, a, what part of it? Uh, if I um, study mathematics, I'm certainly growing personally, no question about it, is that it's not defined. What is defined very clearly is not dogma. Uh, so that's a, a way of the word dogma is a way of disparaging a religion. Religions are dogmatic. Being dogmatic is bad. Stop being dogmatic. You're such a dogmatic person. So uh, that's number nine. Number eight, stand by. Here it comes. Roll of the drums. Our relationships with fellow humans are more important than whether or not we agree about the existence of a supreme being. That's right. 
Our relationships with fellow humans are more important than whether or not we agree about the existence of a supreme being. I, I don't have to spend time um, dismantling that one for you. Um, the whole question is whether our relationships with our fellow humans will survive if we do not have any kind of set of external rules. As long as this is just about me and my relationships with fellow humans, I will end up being nice to the people I like, and I'll end up ignoring everybody else. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Now, does this mean there are no uh, ethical culture devotees who follow these in a very good and wonderful way? No, of course there are. There certainly are. And at least having these is probably better than having nothing at all. However, my point about this is the following. People sometimes say to me, so are you saying you cannot have an atheist who's a good and decent person? And I say, no, of course I'm not saying that. I myself know some. Uh, of course not. But here's what I am saying. I'm saying it's extremely unlikely that an atheist will have a grandson who will stand up and say, I am an atheist, and we will all agree that he's a good and decent person. I don't think atheism continues through three generations. So a good and decent atheist is not necessarily going to produce good and decent atheist children who in turn will produce good and decent atheist grandchildren. In most cases, and, um, and again, at another point I'll tell you how I know this, but in most, ca in most cases, our good and decent atheist is going to have a grandson who is not a good a an atheist, but is a good and decent religious Christian or Jew. Or, alternatively, our atheist is going to have a grandson who is, not an who is an atheist, but isn't a good and decent person, but is a thug. That's, I'm afraid, how it tends to go. One of the great things about religion is that they perpetuate. And if they don't, well, then it shows that they're not a religion. The Ethical Culture Society was started in the 1850s. It's still around. Uh, Islam, been around since the 7th century. It's still around. Christianity, been around. Judaism, still around. Socialism. Is socialism a religion? Of course it is. Doesn't it require sacrifice? Absolutely. As Lenin famously said, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And so real socialists are willing to be broken for the good of the cause of socialism. Doesn't it connect you with a lot of other people? Of course it does. The workers of the world, the downtrodden, the dispossessed and the disenfranchised. Of course it does. And doesn't it... Um, uh, uh, requ requires sacrifice and it connects you with a whole lot of other people and it connects you with something bigger than yourself. Yeah, socialism is a big movement, no question. And so, um, of course, there are decent people who are ethical culture societies. What I've never found is somebody who says, I'm an ethical culturist, my father was and my grandfather before him, and I am a person who still lives by these principles, as did my father and my grandfather. I've never met a third-generation ethical culturist. Regardless of that, on with number seven. 
We help our children develop and internalize their own code of ethics to draw upon when faced with difficult choices. Okay, again, it's a pretty sentiment, right? Who wouldn't want their children to have their own internalized system of ethics to draw upon when faced with difficult choices? Here's the problem. Almost everybody who behaves wrongly knew that he was doing wrong, but lacked the willpower to stop doing it. Did you hear what I just said? It's a really important point. When people rob or steal, they pretty much know that that's not a good thing. Even when, when people commit fraud, when people commit adultery, they know. That's why these affairs are usually conducted in secret. People don't fail in life because they did not know what to do. They failed in life because they lacked the internal strength to do what they knew they should do and to avoid doing what deep down they knew they shouldn't be doing. So therefore, number seven, which tells we help our children develop and internalize their own code of ethics to draw upon when faced with difficult choices, a nice sentiment. But um, yeah, it doesn't really mean anything. And number six is a very nice sentiment because it's got all the advantages of sounding like a slogan. Deed is more important than creed. Okay, so think about that for a moment. Deed is more important than creed. Things you do are more important than things you believe. That's true. But what they're ignoring is the next part that, that should be there and isn't, which is that what we do is shaped not by the facts we know, as I just said, but it's shaped by the things we believe. In other words, deed ultimately for the people around you is more important than creed, right? I care how you behave toward me if you're my neighbor. I don't really care what you believe. But how you believe is a function how you act is a function of how you believe. Number five, this I've been counting down. Number five, we celebrate life's joys and support each other through life's crises. Exactly like the members of my tennis club, which I don't belong to. But, uh, but that's what we celebrate life's joys and support each other through life's crises. That is a part of being a member of a religion but it's not the essence of it. It's part of it. Number four, we work together to improve our world and the world of our children. Pretty sentiment, not a policy. We work together to improve our world and the world of our children. Uh, do you think, and I'm, I'm taking an extreme, and I shouldn't really go to an extreme, but do you really think Adolf Hitler didn't believe he was working to improve his world? and the world of all Germans, and the German... Do you really think the German people who joined the Nazi party didn't think that they were improving the world? Come on. Do you really think Bernie Sanders doesn't think he's improving the world? I think... I don't know the man, but, uh, you know, he is a, a socialist, and many people like him because they feel that he believes what he says, which is unusual for politicians. So uh, there he is. We work together to improve our world and the world of our children. Very nice, but it doesn't say what sort of world it will be. 
improve doesn't mean anything because everybody thinks they're improving the world by their actions, particularly movement leaders, particularly crusaders. So I'm, I'm afraid I can't take number four terribly seriously. Reason, compassion, and responsibility are central to our communities. Um, <laughs> look, I think everybody would subscribe to that. You don't have to be a member of the ethical culture society to believe that. Everybody would believe that. Reason, yeah, I think I'm logical, but doesn't everybody think they're behaving reasonably, even when they're not, right? Why do you have to say to somebody sometimes, be reasonable? They think they're being reasonable already. <laughs> There's no point in saying be reasonable. Uh, compassion, right, that's true. But behaving with compassion as your primary guideline is hugely destructive. Think about what raising children will be, what your children will turn out like if all you act with is compassion and responsibility are central to our communities. It's a pretty sentiment. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, number two, we strive to protect the earth upon which we are dependents. What does that mean? Does it mean mowing your lawn or does it mean driving electric cars? Like, what does it mean? We strive to protect the earth upon which we are dependents. And number one, we affirm the worth, the dignity, and the uniqueness of every human being. Does that include Donald Trump, by the way? Just asking, just wondering. All right, so uh, I'm not going to spend any more time on the Ethical Culture Society. I'm only telling you this because I want you to understand that many, many, many Jews who didn't want the rituals and the rules and the regulations and the restraints of Judaism, many, many Jews who denounced the idea of looking different, right? Do they really want to wear a skull cap on their heads? No, absolutely not. Do they want to stand out by the food they eat? No, of course not. And so for many Jews in the 19th century, who lived in an atmosphere of deep and, uh, and, and, and convicted religiosity, felt a little awkward. They felt a little out of it by not being able to, be, to have a religion. They didn't subscribe to the tenets of Judaism. So, yeah, they were sort of Jews, but everyone else was going to church. Everyone else was going to synagogue. Who are these people? And, and they were the majority of Jews, by the way. And so the Ethical Culture Society in the 1850s popped up uh, just right. It was exactly what was needed. And they had their meeting rooms, even some of them, the famous Ethical Society main meeting room, I think had stained glass windows. And so for all their non-Jewish neighbors, they were going to church, right? It was called the Ethical Culture and they went there religiously. I don't know if they went on Saturdays or Sundays, but they did go. And uh, as time went by, they, uh, they built ethical culture schools for their children because other people were giving their children Bible education and education in their faith. And uh, the ethical culture society people wanted to do the same. And that is exactly what they did. So you see that uh, back in the 19, in the uh, 19th century, 
ethical culture societies fulfilled the need for Jews who didn't want to be Hebrews, they didn't want to be Jewish, uh, but they did need a religion. And so the ethical culture society provided a great need. Now, today in the 21st century, uh, many, many, many people, particularly in the Northeast, are not religious at all. And so Jews who want to have no connection at all with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are fine because if they're active in media, in entertainment, in uh, education, the odds are that most of the people they mix with are not religious either, excepting what I just said isn't true. They are religious, but they have different religions. See, that's the key thing. And so you won't be surprised to hear that the ethical culture society has fallen on hard times because nobody needs it anymore. Today, it is perfectly socially acceptable uh, to be nothing, you see, but nobody is ever nothing, are they? Because one religion will always rush in to fill the vacuum left when another religion is vacated. And so when Jews abandon the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, many times they adopt the religion of secular fundamentalism. And they worship the big G of government, of, of little G of government instead of the big G of God. Yes, there are many alternatives to the ethical culture society today. Um, how about climate change? There's a little bit of a religious quality there, isn't there? It's something bigger than yourself. I'll say it's saving the planet. <laughs> um, it connects you with a whole lot of other people. Oh, it's wonderful. There's such a warm feeling when you join other people. Oh, we must save the planet. We must care for the environment. Oh, we're such virtuous, pious people. It's too wonderful for words. And sacrifice, absolutely. Instead of driving a decent five-liter, eight-cylinder car that runs on that most abundant and beautiful blessing called gasoline. Instead, we drive silly little electrical cars that leave us stranded at the worst possible moments, like in a snowstorm on a gridlocked highway. Uh, so, yeah, that's a sacrifice. Sure it is. And, uh, and there are other sacrifices that are also part of being a climate change devotee, being a member of the church of climate change. And I think you'll see that if, you know, we even have our Joan of Arc, right? Greta Thunberg is Joan of Arc. You think about it. Uh, so much of the climate change movement is explained and understandable when we see that it fills a religious need. Now, religious dogma has nothing to do with truth, right? Is there a way to prove objectively by some scientific method that the Jews were ever in Egypt, let alone got out of Egypt? Now, I believe it's true, but I have no way of persuading you of that. Not a single way. And yet it is central and fundamental to my belief system, even the Ten Commandments, is I am the Lord your God, not who created heaven and earth, interestingly enough, but who took you out of the land of Egypt. That's how central it is. Can't prove it. And so it is the fact that you cannot prove climate change. Irrelevant. Doesn't matter. 
the fact that bizarre and improbable claims and warnings have been made about climate change, in spite of the fact that none of them have come true. It's since the 1960s they've been talking about how climate change will kill millions of Americans and many, many millions of other people. They've been warning that people have said by 2020, England will be a, uh, uh, a shriveled up, sick, doomed, hungry, starving population. Actually, if you've been to the United Kingdom lately, they've been doing pretty darn well. And uh, Boris Johnson is taking them to even higher levels. So why is it that climate change constantly undermines its own credibility by issuing these dire and unlikely warnings of horrible calamities that never come to pass. Well, isn't that religious as well? You know, you're all going to burn in hell if you don't do this, and you're going to do this, and, and God's going to reveal himself. You know, the, the Butlerites showed up in, I think it was 1848, maybe. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. But uh, they all showed up by the tens of thousands in a field in, I was in upstate New York, I think, uh, to witness the end of times. Right? That's what religions do, okay? Not, not always calamitous warnings. Sometimes we speak about wonderful things in the future, but the idea of making promises about what's going to come to pass in the future, that's not science talking, my friends. And I've already covered a few weeks ago how uh, false and fake is the claim that 97% of scientists believe in that. It's not true. But that's part of any religion. You follow what the priests say, and you believe it implicitly, in spite of the fact that it has no proofs available. And so we have an additional uh, religion. Before I tell you about that, though, I'm going to invite Susan Lappin, who you last heard arguing, debating, interrupting, and yelling at me a few weeks ago when we were talking between us about the whole question of whether if you have a son and a daughter and the fairy godmother offers you the gift of confidence and beauty, good looks, who gets which? But you'll be happy to know that in spite of our debate, Susan Lappin and I still gaze longingly and lovingly into one another's eyes, and she is only too happy to join us for the next few minutes as I tell you that time is running out to join us for a very exciting couple of weeks coming right up. Welcome, Susan Lappin. Wonderful to be together again here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. What do we got? Well, firstly, I'm sure people will appreciate that we are not arguing this time. We're on the same page. And the only thing I have to correct is I did not yell at you at all. All I did was point out that you were mistaken, illogical, irrational, and wrong. But there was no yelling involved. All right. So, I mean, am I expected to sit quietly for, <laughs> for that? I've, I've told you before, Susan, I can withstand criticism. I welcome criticism. I welcome constructive criticism. But I do draw the line at abuse. <laughs> And especially, this is, you know what, this is, this is emotional abuse. By the way, folks, that's another undefined phrase, emotional abuse. As you've seen, I've just used it nonsensically. It means absolutely nothing. 
if a husband or a wife comes and tells me my spouse subjects me to emotional abuse, I don't listen to that. I probe for exactly what that means. And typically, what it means is exactly the kind of emotional abuse you just heard me being subjected to. And you're going to survive it just fine. But we are on the same page. So I just, I never yelled, though. I certainly did not yell at you. I really try not to do that. We, but I mean, we rarely yell at each other. I can't, I, I, I can't think of, I really can't think of when that, when, when we ever did. Well, let's, let's probably leave it ask at our kids to phone in with their answers. <laughs> but I don't think they'll be, I don't think they would find it easily. They would no, call it easily. No, I don't think so either. However, we are on the same page and really excited about sharing that on February 11th, we start our master class on updating and rewriting America's Real War. America's Real War was a book we published in uh, just before 9-11, just before the terror attacks on America. And um, it was a book that made a number of uh, astounding predictions. None of them were about climate None of them were about um, the weather or, or use of energy, running out of gasoline. None of those. The predictions were, had to do with the growth of secularism in the West. Uh, it spoke about the growth and the intensifying of the war against Judeo-Christian belief, predominantly in America, and the, the book was entitled America's Real War. The subtitle was An Orthodox Jewish, I should have said Hebrew rabbi, insists that Judeo-Christian values are vital for our nation's survival. And, and what the book spoke about was the fact that, yes, there is a big canyon that cuts through American culture. And uh, it's not between blacks and whites or, or Jews and Christians or rich and poor or men and women. No, it's between those who believe that Judeo-Christian values are vital for our nation's survival and those who believe that they are nothing but primitive obstructions to progress. And um, if anything, that canyon in American culture has deepened and widened and the attitudes of people on both sides have become increasingly more fervent and convicted and even aggressive. If I can put in the one piece of good news, it's a terrible piece of good news, but it's that when, when that book was written, when we wrote that book in the late, it was about 1999, people were, uh, some people dismissed it as, as, don't be silly. I mean, you're exaggerating. It, it can't be the, what's going to happen. And now there's no question. In other words, Antifa, the violence, the violent rejection of free speech on university campuses, the whole transgender movement, um, all sorts of things that people, you know, would say, oh, how bad? I mean, you're just being ridiculous. People are good. And it's exactly what you've been talking about on the podcast. In other words, we don't need religion to be good. Well, we're now 20 years later. Can you believe it? And we actually do see the effects. We see a rise in suicide rate. We see a rise in anxiety and depression among young people. We see a rise in violence. We see a rise in disrespect and inability to get along, inability to accept that another person might have a different point of view from you. We see, um, we've seen economic results from it. We've seen all sorts of the results of the things we said, hey, it's dangerous to take religion out of America, 
have actually come true. But the, the good you know, piece of news people, is that it's evident. People thought, and we spoke about this in the book, people thought that, oh, religion is dogmatic and it drives wedges between people. But if we could just get religion out of the way, it would be replaced by a benign kind of nothingness. No beliefs. No convictions and credos that separate people. We'll just sing Kumbaya together. We'll all get along and we'll all be rich and wealthy and healthy. And we emphasized in the book that religion, you want to get rid of Judeo-Christian Bible-based faith? Sure. Just be aware that it will be replaced by other religions. And what we've seen is now an America beset by religions of secular fundamentalism, religions of climate change, religions of socialism, uh, and other religions that uh, are equally dangerous that we need to identify. So bottom line is that uh, uh, we own the rights to the book and we are redoing the book. We're writing a new edition. You see, think about this. If you were writing a book about religion and politics in America today, could you leave out the word Islam? Could you write such a book without mentioning Muslim? I don't think so. Could you write a, such a book without mentioning immigration? What else did we not mention, Susan? Well, this was... Um uh, homosexuality had a very well transgenderism was never mentioned because yeah. we never heard of such a thing in those days right but there was this is pre-homosexual marriage even and we spoke about it we you know but at, at that point um well it was way before Pre president obama was running but you'll remember that in, when he ran for his first term he scoffed at the idea that anyone would suggest that they were asking for anything more other than homosexuals should not be penalized, but that it was absurd to think that anybody was in, was working towards homosexual right. marriage. So there's a lot of stuff that needs to be updated because we want to issue a new edition of uh, America's Real War. And um, so what we've done is we have opened up applications for people who want to help us redo it. And our plan is to get together online twice a week, uh, two evenings a week, with the uh, hope that we will share ideas, you will ask questions, you will raise, we will basically review the book together and we will understand um, what some of the things are that have to be rewritten. Needless to say, all the people who participate will be acknowledged in an acknowledgement section in the new book because you really will be helping to uh, shape the direction in which the book goes. Can I just add in because it's going to be, it's not going to be an endless series. It's, a, it's five weeks and we totally understand how busy everybody's lives are and every session will be recorded so if you can only make half the sessions or you can make eight out of the ten or even four out of the ten you will be able to listen but it will do it it gives you a venue to be able to contact us and say hey you know you mentioned this but how about this or, or you know I have an idea what you know I'd love to hear what you think about this am I right that the recordings will only be available to those who subscribe to absolutely join? yes it's not we're not issuing them publicly no 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 by, so by is... subscribing to the class However, you don't yeah. have to make all of them uh, live. Okay, you, you have access right. even if you don't. How do you subscribe to the class? It's easy. Well, you all know our website already, right? It's rabbidaniellappin.com. You know that. But here's all you have to add. You have to enter rabbidaniellappin.com, and then you go forward slash and the word master class, one word, M-A-S-T-E-R-C-L-A-S-S. -S -S. Or as my wife might say it, 
<laughs> master class. <laughs> master class or master class, whichever way you spell it. Uh, no, whichever you pronounce, you pronounce it, it. you're required to spell it the right way. M-A-S-T-E-R-C-L-A-S-S, master class. And so it's rabbidaniellappin.com forward slash master class. You can read more details about the 10-session online program that we are going to share together with one another as we uh, make this new book come together. Uh, you may or may not have read America's Real War. You don't have to have read it before this program begins because we are going to be sending you uh, the chapters that we are going to be discussing um, electronically so you'll be able to see everything that was written in 1999 and help us figure out what has to be added or maybe taken out uh, as we now face a re-release of the book hopefully before the 2020 election. That is the plan. Susan Lappin, do you have anything? What a silly question. I was going to say, do you have anything else to say? <laughs> not, for, not right now, though. Thank you, dear. Whatever you say is fine by me. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. And don't you forget <laughs> it. <laughs> All right. All right, back to the kitchen with you. And uh, we uh, get ready to proceed. Now, uh, as I, I said, it's... Um, it makes a lot easier to understand if you recognize that secular fundamentalism is a religion. Uh, when you understand that there are people who worship the little g of government as I worship the little g of God, that really helps me understand them better. When I understand that climate change is a church it all makes sense. I don't have to argue with people. Look, do you think I ever would have an, a, a theological argument with a Muslim? You're wrong. I'm right. No, I'm right. You, of course I wouldn't. Life's too short for that. That's ridiculous. Uh, these are, are matters of faith. They're matters of belief. They're incredibly important. They are very uh, profound and very powerful in shaping the behavior of their devotees. Beliefs really matter. But there's no point in debating a belief. I'll debate a fact with you. And, and this is true in every area. I've said before that uh, I'm really not going to debate with you um, whether Mount Everest is really exactly 39,000 or 29,000 feet high. Um, maybe it's 29,500 feet. I'm, I'm really not going to debate that with you at all. Uh, it's easy to find out. We can look it up and we'll get an answer. But if you want to debate whether it makes sense, whether it's a good idea for people to risk their lives every summer climbing Mount Everest, uh, is that a good idea? That we can talk about because these are beliefs and it's, oh, it's, it's valuable, it's fun, it's delightful, it's educational to discuss beliefs. It's ne it's never, um, there's never much point in discussing facts. And so when it comes to a person's belief system, no, I'm not going to discuss that because that's your belief system and I have my belief system. Uh, it might be interesting, but I'm not going to waste time on it because it has no practical benefit at all. Uh, but one of the belief systems, one of the uh, religions out there, and I think it'll be helpful uh, in your interactions with others and in how you think about dealing with the world around you, your world, 
it will be helpful when you know that scientism is a religion. Now, I'm not speaking about science. Science is science, but scientism is a religion. What is scientism? Scientism is the religion of science. Uh, Scientism has much in common with superstition. Scientism, like superstition, has the stubborn insistence that something has powers which no evidence supports, right? A black cat doesn't have any powers, but superstition believes that it does. Uh, science, scientism believes that science has powers that it doesn't. For instance, um, science, science does not have the ability to tell me the right and best way to live my life. It might tell me how to stay physically healthy within certain areas because science does not scientism for sure doesn't accept the whole area of placebos. Scientism doesn't deal with holistic health. Scientism doesn't deal with the fact that our minds and souls are interrelated with our bodies. Uh, Scientism believes that when it comes to facts and the explanations of facts, science is the only way to go. Um, Scientism believes that uh, uh, that even though the world view confined solely to things that can be counted and measured and weighed and evaluated in a laboratory, such a view of the world is a very impoverished world view. But scientism nonetheless believes that everything in the world of any significance can be counted, measured, weighed, Uh, evaluated in a lab. Um, The the limits of science is unknown to the religion of scientism. Uh, Even though we recognize that science has a tendency to push a good scientific idea far beyond the domain in which was originally introduced and usually far beyond the domain which can provide any illumination at all, but that is scientism. The dogged, dogmatic, religious belief that science can answer everything. Scientific imperialism is the idea that all decisions can be made scientifically. And I I really want to stress that scientism today has become the religion of American intellectuals. And I'll say that disparagingly and even disdainfully, but it is absolutely true. By the way, you should also be aware that in the same way that scientism loves finding fault with priests of religion, they love finding faults, examples of where rabbis or priests or pastors have not, have sadly not lived up to the details and principles of their faith, and they'd be the first to acknowledge that they failed. In that same way, uh, scientism ignores the fact that there is a huge and published list of scientific misconduct, huge numbers of acts of fraud conducted by scientists, Huge numbers of instances where patients' lives have been risked and in some often taken 
in the pursuit of academic grandeur by publishing studies that have been based on known to be faulty and flawed tests and flawed evidence. Yes, biologists, scientists, doctors, everybody in the field of science. Yes, a huge list of malfeasance, of fake, of fraud in these areas as well. And so uh, not only that, by the way, but uh, it's quite clear that scientific misconduct is on the rise. So we, we really ought to be aware of the fact that it's scientism is a religion and it has its high priests and it has its fallen priests, priests who, who didn't live up, right? Because one of the principles and, and uh, fundamental commandments of scientism is that uh, studies have to be reliable. They have to be based on blind evidence. They have to be peer-reviewed. Uh, there are all kinds of commandments to keep scientism pure. But you should know that it has been betrayed countless times by its devotees. So please don't ever expect to get my compliance by using words like studies reveal. I find it difficult to stop myself from bursting out laughing when people say to me, studies have shown. I, I hold my, out of, in the interest of politeness and in the interest of treating everybody as, as worthy of the dignity of someone created by God, I restrain myself from laughing, but it's, it's one of the hardest things I do when people, oh, studies have shown, oh, really? <laughs> right. Um, so uh, if, if I had to tell, let, let's imagine I met a, a, a devotee of the religion of scientism, and they're all over the place. I, meet, I run into them all the time. I talk to them. But if I found one who was open and he said to me, so you're telling me that I am blind to how the world really works because I only believe in the religion of scientism. What are the three most important things that you believe that I, as a member of the Church of Scientism, what are the things you think I should know? Are there three things? And I would say yes. I would say, um, by the way, this is arguable. I'm not, these are not the three things that I'm emphasizing dogmatically. Uh, but if I didn't have a lot of time to think about it, and if I just had to come up with three things, these would be them. I would say, listen, Mr. Uh, Priest of Scientism, what you don't understand and you need to understand is that people marry and form families with no reference to any scientifically measurable criteria. And so either human beings are all mad or there is more to life than things that can be scientifically measured. The second thing I'd say is when we hire people, we do so on no scientifically measurable criteria. We hire people for skills, for their own connections, for their integrity, for their purposecacity, for their ability to um, be diligent and to pick themselves up even when things go wrong. These are all non-physically measurable phenomena. If any psychology <coughs> or any psychologist could come up with a test to measure uh, how resilient a person is, how optimistic a person will be, even on difficult days, 
um, how, uh, how honest a person will be. If any psychologist could market such a test, I promise you he would be a millionaire within two months. Because if there was really a way of scientifically measuring those qualities of the human beings we are interviewing and hiring to work in our companies, of course we would buy such a test. There's no question about it. By the way, don't write in and tell me that, oh, there are personality tests. Okay, I think you know uh, that those are nothing but attempts to provide exactly what I'm telling you about, but can't be done. And the proof is that those tests provide nothing even close to certainty or reliability in tests in in hiring. Look, uh, they're helpful only in the sense that every delay you make in hiring somebody, everything you do in hiring to get to know the person better, uh, whatever you do, everything is better than not doing that. Um, Okay, Um, and number three, what's the third thing that I think that a member of the Church of Scientism needs to know? And that is, Number three, I would say this, at the limits of human physical performance, let's say Olympic level athletic competition, or let's say at the limits of human survival, the question of whether somebody makes it or not flows from no scientifically measurable criteria. In other words, everybody at an Olympic level of performance has the same degree of bodily perfection. They've been picked out of tens of thousands of athletes. They've trained under the very best coaches. They are all at the peak of human performance. And the proof is there's no way to scientifically predict who's going to win because it isn't scientific. It's the reserves of spiritual endurance that they draw on. The ability to endure pain, the ability to drive themselves forward one more step one more push, one more lift. This is all spiritual. Uh, you know, recently, as of the time I'm recording this, uh, in um, early uh, in the year of uh, 2020, uh, there are two people who have just hiked across the Antarctica. They've hiked across the South Pole. Um, one of them is the name of Rudd, and one is O'Brady. Uh, one, I think, was, one was British, one, one was American. They both made it. And, and they speak about exactly what they drew on was entirely spiritual. Right? That's what I'd say. I'd say, listen, you of the Church of Scientism, you believe that science is everything. Well, science means that everything of value in life can be measured scientifically, evaluated, counted in a laboratory. Well, I've just told you three important areas of human life that do not draw on anything measurable by scientific criteria, how we marry and form families, how we hire people, and how we survive and endure and achieve peak human physical performance. We draw on spiritual, non-physical criteria, no scientifically measurable criteria. And I'd say, surely... As a thoughtful and humble intellectual, you, Mr. Priest of Scientism, would agree that since these three important areas of human life do not respond to any scientifically measurable criteria, surely 
you would have to agree that there's something beyond, something a little further. Now, because I like flipping the coin to the other side, what are the three important things that I would say that if you are a religious person, you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, but you know nothing about science, I would say you also lack something of how of knowing how the world really works. Yes, in fact, in ancient Jewish wisdom, the Bible is shown to expect us to learn how the world works. That doesn't mean you should study uh, philosophy. It doesn't mean you should study um English literature. It doesn't mean you should study comparative religions. It doesn't mean you should waste your time and money getting a degree in uh, racial or gender studies or all of the other nonsensical courses that use up your time, energy, and money at American universities. No, but there are some things you should know, and the good news is you don't have to go to university to know them. All right, so... um, uh, if I had to pick three, again, very hard. I mean, and it's very arguable. I'm sure you'd come up with a different three. But if I just had to quickly say, okay, here's the flip side of the coin. Um, if you are a rabbi, you're a priest, you're a pastor, here are three things you should know. Um, if you are a person who has spent their lives um, studying Shakespearean literature, here are three things you should know. What are the three things? Um, one of them is, the first one I'd say is Newton's first law. Newton's first law says that anything tends to remain doing whatever it is doing unless it's acted upon by an external force. In other words, if, uh, if I take an apple, hold it in front of my face and let go, the apple will sit there unless it is acted upon by an external force, and it is called gravity. But if we went into outer space where there was no gravity, uh, photographs from the space station and elsewhere have shown us that sure enough, you take the apple, put it in front of your face, remove your hands, the apple will just sit there. And likewise, if I pitch a baseball, it will continue traveling at the speed with which it left my hand forever unless it's acted upon by any external force. And sure enough, it is. Air resistance slows it down. Gravity pulls it towards the earth and eventually it'll hit the earth or it'll hit the bat of the, uh, of, of the fellow uh, team member. And so um, there, there it is. Newton's first law, things continue doing what they tend to be doing uh, all along. A car, you want a car to slow down, you have to push down on the brake and all the forward motion energy of the car gets converted to heat at the brake pads and the disc on your four wheels in your car. Uh, Things tend to want to keep doing whatever it was they were doing, and they tend to want to uh, stay stationary if that's what they were. I think this is the first one I would list because it has human life implications as well. Don't we all want to keep doing whatever it is we're doing? Isn't change hard for all of us? Doesn't change take energy? To break yourself of a bad habit, very hard. To acquire a new habit, to start exercise, very hard. Because Newton's first law happens to also be true in human life. But it's mainly, I tell it, about true about it being true in understanding the world around us. Why does your handbrake not 
work very well if you lose your main foot brake, right? If you press on your foot brake, your foot goes down to the floor of the car and you go, oh no, we've lost our brakes. Hey, no problem. Pull up the handbrake. It'll achieve absolutely nothing. Why is that? Well, because a handbrake's much weaker than a footbrake. Why is that? Because all it's required to do is keep a car stationary when it is already stationary. You don't need a strong brake for that because the car already wants to remain stationary if it was stationary. Really? How do you know? Well, it's Newton's first law. Okay. Um, the uh, second thing I'd say that everybody should have some awareness of, uh, let's call this mini course today, your rabbi providing you a course on physics for poets. Uh, the second thing I tell you is time and space implications of relativity. Basically, just understanding that time and space are inseparable and that you can't really understand time if you don't understand space. You cannot really understand space if you don't understand time. And there isn't time for me to delve more deeply into that for the moment. But And neither should you. You don't have to. But you should at least know that complicated questions like what lies beyond the furthest star or what is gravity or um, uh, why can't things travel f faster than the speed of light. If those questions interest you, then you have to know, you have to understand the, um, the bond between space and time in order to understand those. So at least just knowing that uh, 20th century relativity physics depend on the relationship between space and time, that's great. If you just know that, at least it keeps us intellectually humble on this front. And then uh, the third one I'd say is the second law of thermodynamics. It's got a nice ring to it, doesn't it? You got to know the second law of thermodynamics. But what is that? Uh, what that is, is the law of entropy. That is the law that says that if I put a nice neat layer of green marbles in a glass jar and then I put a layer of red marbles on top of that and another layer of green on top and another layer of red and then you look at this nice glass jar and it's got six layers of green and red marbles layered uh, separately from one another it looks very pretty and you now start shaking the glass jar and it's very noisy so I'm not going to actually do it for you but if you'll use your imagination and you see the glass jar being shaken here in front of you do you notice all the marbles migrating they're all moving around this jar as I shake and it doesn't take more than a dozen shakes before the original pattern of green and red layers has gone my question to you is, how long will it require me to shake this jar here in front of your amazed eyes for the green and red layers to reappear? How long did you say? 10 minutes? No, you're wrong. An hour? You're wrong. A year? You're wrong. I'll tell you what, I'll accept any layering system, vertical layers of green and red diagonal layers. I'll even accept all the reds down below and one big fat layer of green on top of them. And the answer is it'll never come back. And in saying never, you understand the law of entropy, that things in the universe tend towards a state of disorder. You want to know why it is that I tidy my desk and within a, a week it's looking messy? That's entropy. But if I wait for years and years and years, my messy desk never becomes neat all by itself. That's the law of entropy. Those are the three things I would say that we ought to study. Um, I think that being a religious, God-fearing, Bible-believing human being also means you should understand something about economics. 
because the scientism attempt to explain economics doesn't work. The idea of coming up with econometrics, the idea that we can predict uh, the behavior of people with money, simply not true. It's one of the reasons that we call economics the dismal science, not just because Thomas Carlyle a long time ago said that uh, things go bad economically or Thomas Malthus said, no, not because of that, but because there are certain things that science does not explain. How people relate to money is one of them. I said earlier, male and female relationships doesn't apply to science either. They don't respond to science, neither does money. So economics isn't really something that can be studied scientifically. Scientism believers think it can. They're wrong. Uh, The human mind, the human soul, there's a reason that Carl Jung, the great psychiatrist of the early 20th century, broke up with his longtime friend Sigmund Freud. The reason is because Sigmund Freud believed that the human being in all his complexity, or hers even more, can be reduced to nothing but a set of equations, that our deepest emotions are nothing but the firing of synapses in our brains, and that essentially, if you put together $9 worth of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and potassium and a few other chemical elements, and just put them together in the correct way, you'll have a human being. That's what Freud believed. Freud believed that a scientific approach to our mental health can be the solution. Carl Jung thought that Freud was mad. He certainly believed he was wrong. And so the two longtime friends split up over this question of whether there is such a thing as an impenetrable human soul that will never be explained by a scientist. Those who believe it can, well, they believe in scientism. And so the dangers of science becoming an ideology, that is what the religion of scientism is all about. And that's really what we are talking about today. Um, the, um, The dangers of scientism are very real. And I think that I am providing you with a valuable insight in terms of understanding yourself understanding the people around you, the most important people in your life, understanding other people, understanding why you disagree so vehemently with other people. Well, as soon as you believe, as soon as not believe, as soon as you understand that when scientism, when science gets elevated to a, uh, an explanation for everything The first and last word from the beginning of human existence on the planet to the very end, when you believe that all of that can be explained by science, then you are a devotee of the religion of scientism. And when you understand that many of the people whom you might find yourself debating, what you really are, it's like you debating with a Muslim about faith. There's no point in that. It's not going to happen. You can't argue with people in different belief systems. You just can't. And when you realize that many people who think of themselves as scientists are not really scientists, but they really are devotees of the belief in the religion of scientism, well, that's a totally different story. And uh, that helps understand why we simply cannot possibly debate and argue people of different beliefs. Now, discussing beliefs within a belief system, that's glorious.
but that's not what we're talking about now. You want to know how the world really works? This is crucial to that understanding. Friends, thank you very much for being part of the show. Uh, remember that uh, you can go to Rabbi Daniel Lappin forward slash masterclass in order to read up more about a program beginning very soon, which is a program of exploring America's real war and putting together the new edition of the book. You can also look elsewhere on our website and see our thought tools, Susan's musings, our Ask the Rabbi. Susan, what is the uh, what is the current Ask the Rabbi about? Do you remember? It's so hard, isn't it? We're we're uh, we're we're writing so much and talking so much and speaking to so many people that it's so very difficult um, to uh, to to stay. Uh, focused on all of these things oh, but uh, um, it, oh, it was actually somebody saying why don't we speak up more against the church and the synagogues that are right uh, one of the questions we were asked was why don't we speak up more against uh, religious leaders who undermine the values so-called religious leaders who undermine the values we're talking about well in a way today's show is also an answer to that question but um uh, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com forward slash masterclass if you're interested in the masterclass. If you're not, it's just the website. And also uh, discussions. We we interact with you on Facebook at a at a group called Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. Got it? Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. And uh, we'd love to see you there. So by all means, head over to Facebook, Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin, and join us there. Uh, also write to us if you would we love hearing from you and you do that at the website at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, you go to contact us and I do get your letters as does Susan. We see them, we read them and we often respond together. So thanks so much for being part of the show. Again, my everlasting thanks to those of you who introduce other people to the show. Uh, if you like it, or at least get some value of it, I'm not saying you necessarily agree with everything I say, but if you get value from gaining these insights from ancient Jewish wisdom into how the world really works, share them with friends, share them with people who are like-minded, and that's good for them, good for you, and good for me. So uh, until next week, when we'll, God willing, be together again, I want to wish you a week of really good times, good times with God, good times with your money, good times with your friends, and good times with your families. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.